All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my main man, Marty Frederick, beard and all, glasses and all, even a hat today. Looking good, dude. How's it going? I'm doing good, Josh. I, you also, you, you may have or may not have noticed, but I gave my beard a little trim uh, over the weekend, um, and I also cut my hair, but you obviously wouldn't be able to tell that because I have a hat on. Right on. Well, dude, and all the a- listeners would be able to tell too, you know, because they're listening. They immediately <laughs> know that, like, oh, look, looks like Marty tr- uh, trimmed his beard. Right. Yeah, it's perfect because they can just picture it in their head uh, for yeah. those who haven't seen you. But also, too, does that mean like, if I pull up our graphic here, do I have to go in and like modify the graphic to make it more realistic? Because like, I mean, you can't. You have like a pretty big beard going on. No, you could leave that just like that, but then just add a, maybe a little bit more crown in there. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Some extra gray. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, uh, Marty, we have something uh, special going on today. So we're already past our 100 episode mark, but today we're going to do something that we've never, ever done before in the history of our show. Is that so? Yeah. We have a husband and wife duo on the podcast. Wow. Yeah. And that is Jeff and Sid Holsklaw. Guys, how are you doing? Doing well. Yeah. I didn't know we were your first husband wife duo. That's pretty exciting. I think, I think so. Unless, unless I'm completely wrong, which Marty, if I am, feel free to correct me and then we'll burst their bubble. But, um, yeah. Well, But here's the thing, like, is there a prize or is that just like something (laughs) that's like, Hey, congratulations. I think it's the hey congratulations yeah. <clears throat> well, I think we uh, I th- I think we did a lot a long time ago, but but was even- it pre was it pre rethinking <clears throat> faith days? Was yes. it theology? Okay, well there we go. Then on yeah. well, rethinking somebody faith. out there is feeling forgotten. So that's I'll true. Apologize on your behalf. Whoever's <laughs> feeling forgotten. But it was technically a different podcast. I mean, it was the same podcast just rebranded, but like it's gone in entirely different directions. That's like then. counting championships when you move a sports team. So I mean, like yeah, it over. right. You guys right. are the first. We'll yeah. go with that. You guys are the, you guys are the first in the NFL, like you know post-championship time frame and like in like the Super Bowl era. You guys are the first. All right. 
Yeah. And as probably the token three for the, of the four of us today, I'm just going to take that. And I'm just going to be like, yes. I'm what first. do you mean by token three? The token three of the Enneagram. There you go. Let's be very clear here. Ah, uh, there we go. I achieved that one. I'm gonna take that. <laughs> and I was raised in California with positive self-esteem was everything. So I'll take the achievement award, the first place award, whatever. I'll take it. I'm there also going to like you, Jeff, because I am also a three. Oh, <laughs> not the token three. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just taking everything away from you guys. Now today. it's a competition. So um, <laughs> um, what I'm going to do, though, is give to you guys an opportunity to uh, change that. Um, so if you've listened to the podcast before, you know, we have a question that we ask every guest. Uh, so we're asking these guests this question. Uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, the Detroit Red Wings. Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> I um so I don't I'm not a current hockey fan so much, but there was a season of my life between my first job and graduate school when I worked nights in a factory and uh I was yeah, I was the only woman on a 14-man crew and big huge Red Wings fans. And so it was not too uncommon to get together with some of my coworkers to watch the Red Wings game and then go to work. So, cause we worked nights. So I, be, and that was, they won the Stanley cup that year that I worked in the factory. So Ooh. I became a big, big Red Wings fan for at least one season. Was this in, was, was this in Michigan? Yes, this was okay. in Michigan. So you're slightly allowed to like the Red Wings if you live in Michigan. Slightly, she was, slightly she allowed. Was raised in yeah. Michigan, I mean. Yeah, my my wife is from Allen Park, Michigan, um, and so she's her parents and her family they're all Red Wings fans, and so yes, like, it's a pass to like them. But uh, it's, okay, so Sorry. I was raised in California. Are you, are you kicking me off now? Do I have no, to go away? No, okay. no, no. <laughs> Well, I was raised in California in the Bay Area when the Sharks became an expansion team. And I went to a Sharks game like their first season. I've never been to a hockey game since. And so I don't really like hockey or watching hockey. But I will say the Sharks. Even though I was living in Chicago for like 18 years when they were winning all the championships, I still didn't become a Blackhawks fan. So there's probably some... Do I get any bonus points for not being a Blackhawks fan? While no. You're too, al you're too aloof. <laughs> He's above no, it all. Uh, uh, like, no, are we? <laughs> I was trying to tell my prediction prior to you guys coming on. I was going to, I already knew Sid's answer, uh, but I was going to guess Chicago for you, Jeff. And I was trying to, to like talk you up to Marty because he's a big Blackhawks <laughs> fan. And like, I knew about living in Chicago for a while. Also good buddy of yours. Uh, Fitch is a huge Blackhawks fan. He's probably why I'm not a Blackhawks <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I love Dave. We'll so blame, we'll I'm a Bulls Dave. fan, Cubs fan. He's go. a Sox fan, so he so he can't. You know, he's upset that I'm a Cubs fan. Uh, I'm a Bears fan, which is just so sad these yeah. days. But oh well. It's yeah, I'm a Bears fan as well. That was atrocious yesterday. But even though we've not agreed on any of the things yet that you guys have said, um, <laughs> um, I'm still eager for this conversation. So just in case <laughs> listeners are, are like, if anyone by any stretch of the imagination is worried about this, I, I have no issue with Jeff or Sid, <laughs> regardless right. of what they've given an answer to. Thank you for um, your generosity. Yeah. <laughs> um, are, are you a Sox fan? I am a Sox fan. Okay. I'm sorry about the La Russa signing. So yeah, it's, we're, we're going to have to see what happens. <laughs> um, well, Jeff and Sid, uh, a more uh, a more serious question: uh, Who are you, and what do you guys do? 
Good. Uh, we are, well, we've been married for 20 years. We just celebrated our 20 year anniversary this year. So that was pretty fun. Um, and we have been involved in a lot of projects together. I was just talking to our 16 year, uh, oh, he's 17. I was just talking to our 17 year old last night about, you know, he was asking questions about like, you know, what makes marriage great and all that. And, uh, I was just talking to him about what a joy it's been for us to and be you're like your dad. <laughs> Absolutely. <Else. laughs> um, but I was talking to him about what a joy it has been for us to be co-collaborators on so many things. Um, you know, since, so I would say the thing that the, if you want to know who we are, we are co-collaborators. I think that's probably a good defining feature of our marriage. Um, we have pastored together, um, we wrote a book together, which I imagine is why you have us here today. Um, we occasionally podcast together. We try to podcast regularly together, but we're not always successful at the regularity part of it. Um, and we, yeah, so we do a lot of things together uh, project-wise. Uh, currently, we co-pastor still at a vineyard church here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And of course, we parent together. We have a 17-year-old boy and another son who just turned 16 and got his driver's license last week. Um, and so, yeah, I think that we are co-collaborators. That's my new... Um, I wrote it down. Yeah. So you also do other things. You have a little side business, though. What's, what do you do? I do, yeah. I also do life coaching and spiritual direction. Um, and that's the thing that fuels me for... A lot of the other stuff that we do it's very life-giving mm -hmm. and so do and I, that i also teach at northern seminary that's how i well that's not how i know dave fitch uh but um and so i do some teaching I, i'm an academic on the side so i love theology and culture all those things nice you guys are very well-rounded you guys have lots of like a lot going on but at the same time everything seems like it's not there's nothing that conflicts and everything seems to fit with you know kind of who you are and yeah i think i think it's cool i mean there's a lot of synergy between us which i think is really cool um i'm really grateful for that like i think it's a real gift that we have as much um like a lot of the stuff like even the side projects that were not the side projects but the other work that we do that's not collaborative i think still contributes to the work that we do together even so you know, all of his um, academic and theological training and his teaching very much plays into what we do together. And my life coaching, spiritual direction stuff contributes to what we do together. And mm. we also just have a lot of fun. So we, en yeah. we, en we enjoy each other most of the time. Most. Yeah. It's so marriages are. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool, though, too, because like. Uh, so listeners, when I talk about going to spiritual direction and such, uh, Sid is the person that I go and hang out with. Hopefully I can disclose that information. Well, I guess it's well, my it's information late. to yeah, disclose. It's your, yeah, it's, it's your information late. to disclose. Yeah. Although this isn't so live, so I could certainly I could just go edit it all That's out. true. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's neat because like the spiritual direction life coachy side has been like super helpful and informative and, and has shaped me greatly. Um, you know, recently in the past six or seven months, however long it's been. And then also I have like the super nerdy dork theology side that like, you know, Jeff was talking about. So it's like, it's cool. Like the, the synergy works well. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the only other aspect, the only other question we would have to ask that's more of a bio type uh, piece before we get to the book is um, our podcast is called rethinking faith. Um, and uh, just, I mean, every once in a while, we like to clarify, that doesn't mean that like we rethink whether we have faith. 
and then decide not to and move on. That's more just like we're constantly evolving our faith. We're constantly thinking about the things we believe and not just settling into a rut of like, oh, this is what we believe and that's it. We never have to think about this ever again. Um, but what would you guys say um, is the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink? Hmm. That's a really good question. Ooh. I'll go first. Okay, good. Um, I think, so I was born and raised in um, the Christian Reformed Church and in the tradition that I was raised in, and I think, you know, there are some shifts that have happened over the last several years, but um, I grew up with the sovereignty of God being a huge doctrinal point. You know, it's like, that was like the first thing we learned is that God is sovereign. He's all powerful, all knowing, omniscient, all those big um, all encompassing traits of God. And so I grew up with this very, um, huge concept of God, which I'm grateful for, which I think is still a wonderful part of my faith. But the part that I was missing was that God is personal. Um, and so I grew up with this idea of, I was just going to say that I was like writing it down. I was like, what would mine be? And I was just about to write down personal so I wouldn't forget it. Now you took it. I'm sorry, sorry to crush your achieving. Um, God, is, God is only personal to, to Sid, Jeff. Yes. Oh, took it. <laughs> but seriously, I always had this concept that God cares about his people as a whole, like sort of nation of Israel kind of people as a whole. Like God cares about his people as a whole, but I never had any understanding that God would care about me as an individual or know who I am as an individual um, or take the time to interact with me in a personal way. So that was the biggest part of rethinking my faith um, that and I came to that understanding finally, not until I was uh, we had already been married. Um, I was in my early, uh, early with uh, 30. I was probably about 30, maybe late 20s. Anyway, uh, my mom had passed away and uh, hit me so hard because um, I lost her so suddenly. Um, and that really put me in an identity spin because I didn't realize how much of my life I had lived out of um, response to who she was. I think I talk about that in the book. Um, but so that was a moment in my life where it sort of became this uh, screaming out at God, how could you do this? And why did you take her? And, and suddenly I found that he actually responded to me screaming and yelling at him, which I didn't expect because I didn't think he cared enough to talk to me. So we can talk about what that looked like later, but like that, that idea of like God personally interacting with me as his precious daughter was a very different understanding of what it meant to be a person of faith. And that has radically changed everything about what I believe about God and how I live a life of believing. Uh, so for me, it was, um, the path was different, but, um, yeah, I think the, the, the thing was the same as I was raised, you know, a conservative fundamentalist, uh, where it was emphasized that you had to have a Jesus as your personal Lord and savior. And that meant don't have a dry ritualistic faith, like all the liberals and Catholics, um, like all the CRC people. Yeah. Like, like Sid and, um, you know, like you're supposed to do your daily devotionals. You're supposed to really mean it. You're supposed to have like really deep faith. Um, and, and then I did take like a hard turn into the spiritual practices and spiritual formation and all those things, which are great too. Um, but I think for me, the change was kind of like, well, what does it mean that God is a person? Like, it doesn't just mean I have like, 
a one-on-one relationship, but like just really having a relationship with someone who's a person. And so uh, of recent, you know, over the last 10 years, like the neuroscience of relationships, of embodiment, of it's so like rethinking faith is kind of like, well, what's, what is the neuroscience of personal relationships? What does that mean about my relationship with God and, you know, Jesus who became, you know, embodied now we're in the time of advent and what does that mean that one day we will see him face to face like all these types of things and so that's kind of like the thing i'm noodling on right now good yeah sid i um i worked at an rca church um in in about two hours north of seattle and uh growing up in the chicago area i never quite realized how close the the like people of the reform tradition like the the mecca almost in the united states is right there I never realized how close it was. And I knew being only, you know, four hours away from where you are, I, I never knew what the reform tradition truly, like I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, working there, I, I can definitely, everything you said, I wholeheartedly affirm sort of that feeling of, you know, never, never. I mean, for me, it was a feeling of never quite being good enough. You could never mm-hmm. quite be smart enough. You could never quite understand enough. You were, you, you might get one concept, but, you know, oh, well, there's always someone that knows way more than you or, you know, like, so it's, it's all, it was all based on how much you knew, mm. not like, you know, how much you knew God. It was based on how much knowledge you, <laughs> you had yeah. of who God was supposed to be, yeah. um, which and was I, a challenge to work through. Yeah. I think it's also one of the gifts of the reformed tradition is just their high value on Christian education. So there's a gift in it and there's also, you know, it can turn into a a captivity almost of like the rationality. If something is irrational, then it's not part of the faith or, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the mystery part of it is not necessarily as much a part of the reformed tradition as I would love to see it be yeah um and that's maybe another you know if i can change my answer (laughs) no uh adding another piece i would say is another huge revolution for me was the the recognition of the role of the holy spirit in the life of jesus Mm -hmm. um and just recognizing that jesus did all the things that he did by the power of the holy spirit with him and then what that really means for us as believers who have also been given the the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what it looks like to live in the life of the Spirit, as Jesus did, mm-hmm. um, is another big, huge revolution in my faith, because that wasn't it, something I grew up with either. Yeah, it was tough coming from being more parts of charismatic traditions and then working in a Reformed church. Oh, I imagine. Um, where, where a lot of that was just like, well, but that's your emotion. That's mm. just... And that's, that's not truth. That's just how you feel and how you feel doesn't mean as much as what absolute truth is. <laughs> and so you can say, well, how I feel is how I feel. I can't, I, I can't all of a sudden just flip a switch and change how I feel about this or how this impacts me. So yeah, I, everything you're saying right on board. So now we're starting to find the area where we're getting more parallel lines instead of the yeah. perpendicular lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really cool. The, the more neuroscience that Jeff and I have looked into together and the more that we've learned about that, the more like emotions are part of the way that we are embodied people. And so to to dismiss emotions is to dismiss a whole way of interacting with God that um, I'm taking a, a course called the Neuroscience of Change. And one of the things I've learned is that we have six distinct neural networks in our body for ways of receiving information 
And only one of those is our what's called the task positive network, which is your rational thinking network. We have five other networks, five other distinct neural networks that were created by God. Um, and only one of those is rationality. The other five are perceiving things from within your body, your five senses outside your body, your perception of where you are related to where you are in space, your emotions. I mean, it's just crazy that we as a faith tradition in so many ways have prioritized one way of interacting and, and receiving God's presence with us when there are so there's this whole spectrum that we've completely neglected. And so that has become a pu- a huge part of what I am pressing into personally, and also what I am trying to bring to people in spiritual direction and in coaching as well, is how else do we interact with God besides just in our rational minds? Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And that's so helpful too. I mean, especially just uh, for myself, like the move, the language I've kind of been using is like the move from head to heart mm. um, has been something that I've been uh, personally working more on recently. Um because I too also like I got introduced in, to the world of theology by some reformed people. <laughs> and like, so that's where, that's where it came from. And then I was like, Oh, you know, so crazy. And um, so the, the intellectual bit is, is still there uh, for me, but I've been working on trying to go from head to heart um, and also uh, work with the spirit. Like uh, you're talking about Sid, but part of my, part of my fear in doing that was, um, and hopefully this doesn't come off as like offensive, uh, to any listeners. Um, but like, I didn't want to become like one of those Holy spirit people, you know what I mean? Like that's like, that's their thing. Uh, but also it's like the Holy spirit has to matter here. Like it's a thing. Um, so finding that balance was, was really helpful. So uh, you, didn't myself. Want, you didn't want to become like a charismatic without a seatbelt. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. what somebody said to me. Uh, <laughs> That's you know, a good way to put it. We're at a vineyard church, and so people, some somebody said to me, "Oh, so you're charis- you're a charismatic with a seatbelt." <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, is that a compliment? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the idea of like the like believing in all of the role, the work of the Spirit, without losing, you know, all of the strong foundation of Scripture, and and you know, it's, yeah. it's that. It's the both and rather than just going all into the realm of emotion without any sort of, um, you know, checks. Yeah, absolutely. Balances. Yeah. Uh, And and also that like that and the the neurological stuff, the like, like metaphysics, all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is such a tangent. I apologize. But this that's really what pushed me into the world of like open and relational theology. Um, And I just started reading some process theology stuff. It's crazy. Like. It's awesome, but we don't have to call me a heretic right now. We're going to jump into your book, uh, <laughs> which we've already been hitting on some themes. And so, yeah, you guys wrote a book. Uh, it's published by IVP. Uh, it's super good. I've actually, I've, I've walked a group of college students through it. Um, and it's called, Does God Really Like Me? Uh, Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Now, right off the bat, the question, does God really like me, is a very deeply personal and difficult question to ask. And so what led you guys uh, to decide to address that question uh, in this book? Well, I kind of found, and I think Sid found this too, that I stopped. um, So I believe that God loves us. I stopped telling people that God loves them as a pastoral practice because I found that people did not respond to that. It's either like, yeah, 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 whatever pastors have to say that. Or 
you know, you know, just like whatever, like what does love mean anyways in our society? I love this. I like that. I like pasta. You know, we love tacos. I love my tacos. And so um, I just found it wasn't doing any work, but based on some of the neuroscience stuff and some prayer movements that we'd been a part of, there was a sense of kind of learning that God delights in us and learning about joy and all these types of things, which I'm sure we'll get to. And, and so I found that when I would say things like, do you know that God likes you? Or if I said, God wants to be with you, which is the subtitle of our book or something like, um, did you know that God is like excited to be with you? Whenever I'd say any of those things, people would be like, Oh, what do you mean? Tell me more. I don't get it. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, in a way that they wouldn't do when I'd say, do you know that God loves you? And so I think part of it was just like contextually addressing questions that people are asking and kind of using language that makes them lean in. And so that's kind of where that does God really like me question because everybody knows God loves, God loves us. Right. But does he like me? And so that's kind of the, for me, the kind of the pastoral question. Yeah. And I think it also springs out of just the personal transitions that both of us made in our faith too. And that, um, you know, I grew up with an understanding of God was just about to break loose on me all the time. Like I was about to be punished all the time. Um, or, you know, I didn't want to let God down. I didn't want to disappoint him. I didn't want to, you know, he's pretty much mad at me all the time. Um, and so it was when I came to, when I came around to understanding, no, actually that's a lot of the brokenness of the relationships on earth here that I have translated onto how I believe God must see me. But in reality, you know, there's this underlying reality that God has always wanted to be with us. And why would he want to be with us if he can barely even tolerate us? Um, and so that, that theological shift of God wants to be with us also created then a shift of God delights in us. And then, you know, once you, once, once I was willing to see that in scripture, it's all over the place. I just hadn't noticed it. Um, and so that, that was a big shift for me and that God doesn't just love me. He actually enjoys me. He likes me. And that, that became something that I couldn't stop talking about. And so I was having conversations with people all the time about that. And then it became this, I was always surprised because, you know, I think this is probably true of anybody. Once you've made a big shift in the way that you think or see the world, you kind of forget that there was a time when you didn't see it that way. It's like when you buy a new car. You're like, yeah. oh, I see it everywhere. And so I would have conversations with people and I was sort of surprised over and over again that people had never heard that God could like them and enjoy them and take delight in them. And then it became this like, oh, that's right. I believed that once too. I want, I want to get the word out. Like people need to know, like this, this changes everything. Everybody's got to know. So then I became this sort of God, God likes you evangelist. And then finally it was like, Jeff had been sort of pestering me to write this book for a long time. What was it like three years until I finally said, okay, I've had like my 50th conversation where the person didn't have any concept of this. I'm ready to write the book. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's how it went. <laughs> I only bugged you for like two years. It's a long time. You're very <laughs> persistent. Well, that's yeah. So, and I, and I feel like that question, um, does God really like me? I, I think people are really asking that question and sometimes without using those words, I think that mm -hmm. people have been asking that question. You were saying, um, they will, um, they will take things that have happened to them and 
they will then immediately a- attach that to God. You know, well, I lost my friend, um, or I lost, um, you know, I-, I lost my job or something, you know, whatever that might be, all of the, anything that may happen to them, they immediately then attach that to God um, and say, oh, well, God did this to me. Um, I have lots of friends that are that way that, you know, they, the, the, I guess it's Josh, Josh and I were actually texting about this a couple of days ago. Essentially the problem of evil um, becomes um, unsurmountable for, for people and because they, something bad happens to them or something crazy happens to them. And then all of a sudden um, like they, it's just God that did this to them. So I guess, I guess the question I'm asking <laughs> is um, what, what role would you say, joy and shame play into this conversation like shame versus guilt yeah uh you want me to take this one or you want sure okay uh why don't you define joy yeah so joy the way the way that we've learned um and i think it's jim wilder that defines joy this way is that joy is the experience of being with someone who's glad to be with you and so joy is not something, it's a, it's a relational emotion. It's not something you experience by yourself. So you can experience happiness by yourself um, and you can, you know, be ecstatic and excited, but joy requires the presence of another person who's glad to be with you. Um, and so that joy becomes the foundation. I mean, we talk about attachment theory a little bit in the book, but like that, that joy is intended to be built at the very beginning with your primary caregiver when you're born. Um, and so that delight that someone is always glad to be with you um, builds into your sense of identity. It builds into your capacity to be able to experience all other emotions. Um, and shame is given to us as an indicator that the relationship is broken. So shame is actually a good thing when it cues us and signals us to there's something wrong with the relationship that matters to us. And then if we can respond to that shame by going to the person and wanting to repair that relationship and, you know, working through that repair process, then shame becomes the motivator that leads us back into relationship. Now, where we get stuck is when shame causes us to withdraw or to isolate or to um, make assumptions and not do the repair work. And I'm, I'm talking about healthy relationships here. I'm not talking about abusive relationships. So that's a whole different territory. Um, but like with a healthy relationship, let's say with Jeff and I, if he, if, if I suddenly feel um, ashamed or if I'm feeling um, shame or embarrassment in our relationship or I feel like he's disappointed with me or something like that, that can create shame in me. If with that shame, I choose to just assume that Jeff is upset with me or disappointed with me or um, that I have done something that has made him upset. And if I choose just hangry, yeah, hangry, grumpy. And if I choose to allow that shame to make me withdraw from him and to continue to live with a sense and an understanding that that's how he feels about me, then that's where shame spirals us down into these really dark places and detaches us from other people. But instead, if that shame becomes the signal where I go to Jeff and I say, hey, I just need to check this out with you. I'm feeling like you're disgusted with me. You're disappointed with me. Can we talk about that? And then if he can clarify what's going on and what he's actually experiencing, now we've repaired what has felt like a ruptured relationship to me. And that shame has turned into a really powerful way for us to reconnect. And so that's different than the guilt, which guilt is I have done something wrong. 
and I need to go and go and apologize and, you know, seek amends. Um, That's different than the shame of I feel like something isn't right. Um, I feel like there's something wrong with me because he's interacting with me in a way that makes me feel icky. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that's where that the and then when I when we go back, when I go back to him and check it out and we repair the relationship, then most likely what comes out of that is then an experience of joy because we're glad to reconnect. We're glad to be with one another again. So that shame is replaced by joy in each other's presence once again. And that's how it is with God. Right. When we so often, I think what happens with with people, with all of us, what happened with me, it happened. It still happens with me. Like we get those feelings of shame, like I've done something. God's disappointed with me or there's something wrong with me or I'm not okay, And that can cause us to withdraw from God. It can cause us to hide from God. It can cause us to choose not to want to interact with God. And then that shame spirals us into deeper and deeper separation where instead what that shame is intended to do is to have us run to God and say, I don't feel right. Help me understand. Tell me who I am again. You know, like it's going back to God and repairing that relationship. And then again, receiving that joy of God saying, I'm always glad to be with you. I'm always delighted in you. We're, you know, he's always working on things with us, always in the process of ongoing creation and ongoing repair and restoration and redemption of who we are. But that shame, that initial feeling of something's wrong with me is intended to drive us into relationship, not away from relationship. Yeah. I I really like, I really like what you said there. I, you know, I think about, just the relationships that I have in my life and, you know, with my, with my wife and with my kids. And I see it, I think I see it most with my kids. My, my oldest is 10 and my youngest is six where um, something will happen that it's not that the relationship is now broken forever, but something has happened and either they're upset with me or I'm upset with them. And I think kids need to learn how to do that. I, I think kids have a harder time, especially younger kids, they, they are more willing to push away. I'm done. I, I don't want to have a conversation with you, uh, but they have to be taught that. I think even though you may feel like I never want to talk to this person ever again in my life, um, that when you are ready, it's important to have that conversation to rekindle and reconcile the relationship instead of just letting it go forever and never talking about it again. Um, so I, I really resonated with what you had to say there. Yeah. And we, I tell a story about that in the book about um, one of my sons when we were grocery shopping at Trader Joe's and he was messing with a pizza, like smushing all the cheese and, and you know, an employee. I felt shame because the employee looked at me like, what in the world are you letting your son do? And then out of my shame that I was experiencing, I kind of snapped at him and then he felt shame. And then, you know, we were just sort of in this disconnected shame spiral. And then when we got onto the parking lot, I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And so I just sort of, he said, my son said, I never want to go to Trader Joe's ever again, because he had this association of like, this is a horrible place. I feel horrible here. And so I just sort of dropped to my knees and was like, oh honey, like, this is not about like, it's, it's okay. I love you. Like you, like it's, you were just, you know, experimenting with pizza. I'm sorry. I yelled at you. And it was, um, and then in that moment we had this big, sweet hug in the parking lot at Trader Joe's. It was a very tender moment. Um, but it was like that, that, that moment that shifted from the shame spiral to the, 
reconnection and glad to be with you. But that, that modeling with our kids, I'm so glad that Jeff and I learned more about joy when our kids were still in our house (laughs) because we've had more opportunities, you know, like, Oh, you're, I, I sense that you're turning away from me right now. Can you turn, like, let's turn toward each other instead. Um, you know, I mean, there's time to cool off, right? It's not like you have to like force people to stay in the moment, but there should always be that repair. Yeah. And I, I think what this reminds me of too, this, this conversation of joy and shame um, is something that I've keep coming back to uh, recently, um, which is this idea that I think the most, perhaps the most important aspect or element of our spiritual uh, growth is how we image God, what we imagine God to be like. And so, because that helps to, to then build identity so we can either build an identity um, based on shame because that's how we image God, or we can we can do one based on joy, right? Um, but what like does that spark anything for you? Like building our identities in in this idea of of joy or shame or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think how we uh, and we talk uh, a lot about uh, having throughout the book, just what is our picture of God and why is God acting in this way? And so we talk about, well, why did God, you know, put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? And why did God kick out Adam and Eve? And, and if your your picture of God is something like, well, God is a sovereign rule giver who demands loyalty and obedience and will punish all rebellion, <clears throat> then your picture is that God put, you know, the, the tree of good and evil in the garden as the first law to um, assert his kind of divine sovereignty so that humans could know that they're humans, that they're not gods, that they're not in charge, that they must obey. And that when they violated that, you know, implicit or explicit command, then they were punished and banished from God's presence, right? And so we have this sense in which God is in charge and that we're supposed to obey and that that's how God set up the world. So my identity or my purpose in the world is to do what God tells me. Um, that. And in one sense, that's not exactly wrong, but I'm not sure that's the fullness of the story. I think it's much closer to God has, and this is how we we tell the the creation of fall narratives, is that God created like a house. He created, uh, creation was meant to be a dwelling place for God and his children and humanity in a, in a partnership. Uh, but because God uh, loves us and likes us, uh he gave us the option to be like, I'm not going to force you to live in this house, right? If you're forced to live in a house and you can never leave, what's that called? <laughs> right? Slavery. Slavery, yeah. a really bad relationship. I mean, all sorts of things, right? And so in one sense, the, the, the tree is this kind of like, you can leave the house if you want to option. Now I'm just going to let you know that leaving the house is death and destruction and despair. Like, you know, so you will surely die. Uh, but that's not because God's going to swoop in and like knock you off. That's just because those are the consequences of your choices. Uh, but God, you know, wanted to be in partnership. And so the, the leaving of the house, the entering into sin and the fall are not necessarily like God's act of judgments, but there's his, him letting reality take its course. And so we are now like in the, in the realm of sin and death. And so, uh, but our identity in that is, well, we are choosing death instead of choosing life and God's always offering us life. Uh, and so those are the kind of the themes we, we take, we kind of trace throughout the, the whole Bible is how is that God is always offering life and why is it that humanity keeps choosing death 
and what are the consequences for these things. And yet with Jesus, he continues the pursuit of us all the way unto death. And so he enters into the realm of death. He dies um, for us so that even in the midst of our death, he is coming to us. He's rescuing us. And so he is the one that wants to be with us. And he's overcoming all the obstacles that keep us from being with God, except for the one obstacle, which is is he's not going to make us live in his presence if we don't want to. But he's overcome every other obstacle besides that, Uh, even our own shame. So the shame that we feel, oftentimes we externalize the shame and the guilt as like God has his finger on us. And we all have church traditions that reinforce that. And certainly there are passages in the Bible that talk about wrath and judgment. So those all need to be dealt with. Uh, But with like, you know, Luke 14, where all, you know, you get three different parables where all of heaven rejoices in one center. Like that's not a reluctant kind of rejoicing that all of heaven is engaging in. I think usually we flip-flop these two things is we think God is all too ready and prepared to judge us, to pour out wrath, but sometimes he's merciful and loving and shouldn't we be grateful? And I think the opposite is true, is that God is more than ready and willing and wanting to pour out mercy and love at all times and kindness and his goodness to all generations. But reluctantly, sometimes there's this reality that is called wrath that is still happening. Uh, But I don't think that's what God wants at all times for all people. Yeah. And that the, the imaging part too, you know, Josh, that you were saying like the most important part of who we are is that we are image bearers. And so, you know, understanding a lot of the old Testament stories that I know are a hang up for so many of us, but understanding that some of those old Testament stories have to do with the reality that God could not allow his people to continue to be his image bearers and behaving the way that they were because it was actually imaging God in such a way that they were telling the world that God was someone other than who God is. And so we talk about that with the exile, especially in that Israel was supposed to be a nation that was bringing healing to the nations around them. They were supposed to be a nation that lived in the way of life and invited others into the path of life. But instead, they were acting in ways that were bringing death and destruction. And so God had to be like, this isn't who I am. And I can't allow you to keep telling all of the nations around you that this is who I am because it's not who I am. And so therefore, there needs to be this exile, this sort of demonstration that God's saying the way my people are behaving right now is not actually an accurate representation of who I am. And so that's a really different understanding of what what is happening in the Old Testament. It's not that God is necessarily pouring out wrath on his people as much as he's clarifying, this isn't who I am, and you are the people of my name. And so when you behave in these ways, you are you are changing what my name means to the world around you. And that can't happen because that's not who I am. And so that was for me when I understood that that was a very different understanding of a lot of that Old Testament stuff that we all get stuck on is like, why is this happening and why is God treating Israel like this? It's like, well, God, God is God is wanting the world to know that I am a God of mercy. I am a God of life. I am always inviting people in. And so when my people are behaving in such a way that is completely against that and is opposite of that, I have to do something because I can't let the whole world think that this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, you guys are giving me a lot to think about today, <laughs> which is a good thing. Not, it's not a bad thing. Um, uh, but then I, I guess the next, the next thought where Josh and I kind of have is, um, 
and especially for me, I don't want to say not for Josh, but for me, you know, I, I currently am attending a, a more charismatic church um, is an AG church. Um, and a lot of the discussion, um, you know, but just not only on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week is just focusing on the presence of God and uh, wanting to be in the presence of God. And um, you say that everything belongs in God's presence. And so joy is the natural state of all things. Can you guys kind of unwrap that for us a little? Yeah, well, we, you know, we look at passages in Isaiah and the Psalms that just talk about how all creation sings for joy. And so there's this kind of creational response of delight in God's presence that's responding to those. And so we kind of look at like that, that should be like the natural state of things, uh, but we aren't in that state. And we do look through um, the promises of God offering his presence to his people, that that's one of the main purposes of God's work in the world. Um, And, but it is, it is tricky because you can say theologically and biblically that like you can never leave God's presence, but you can also say, and, say this biblically, that oftentimes we don't feel God's presence. And so how do those two things fit together? I know, especially Charismatic and Pentecostals, um, they they grapple with that difference between, well, God is always here or is always present, but um, then why do we ask for the Holy Spirit to be, to be present in this worship gathering? Or why do we hope to... And so there is this kind of difference between God's ubiquitous presence and what is called his manifest presence. So like the cloud of fire that descends on Mount Sinai, or uh, the glory of the Lord descending on the temple, or uh, the day of Pentecost. And so there are these tangible, embodied kind of experiences that I, I think are not wrong to long for or even pursue, but aren't necessarily the only benchmarks for what God's presence is um, or where it is. Uh, and so that that is kind of like the difficulty in the more charismatic kind of mindset is, um, at a worship service, if, you know, people didn't fall down or if, you know, someone didn't start crying, then, you know, God wasn't at work or the spirit didn't move. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe not, you know? Uh, and so, so that, that's the difference is the Bible speaks all the time of God's presence being everywhere, but at the same time, old Testament and new Testament, it always localizes God's presence. And so even in Jesus's time, you know, who was, you know, the word become flesh, you know, tabernacling amongst us, you know, every Jew in Jesus's time would be like, well, where's God? They'd like point to the temple. Well, God's, God's in there. Um, and so uh, I think we have to have both those things where we can say, well, we're going to find God in un- unexpected places. Uh, and God should be, you know, in the midst of the, his people as they worship. Uh, those two things kind of should be, we should be open to both those things. Well, and, and the gathered people of God <clears throat> um, is definitely a different thing than, in, you know, God meets with his gathered people because the gathered people are the place of God's presence. So if we, when, when we trace through the book, like, you know, God is present in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then he's present in the, the way that he offers his presence to Israel again after the fall is through the tabernacle and the temple. And then God offers his presence through the person of Jesus Christ. And then God offers his presence through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to the entire church, to all the people who believe in his name, um, then that is where God is present, is in the people themselves. So we no longer have, you don't have to go to a church building um, for God to be present. 
but the people of God, the church, uh, you know, the, the capital C church, the people of God are the place of God's presence in the world. And so as we go about the world, we carry the presence of God with us. So there's this meeting of the presence of God in the meeting of the people of God, and then also the mystery of God meeting and manifesting his presence in really, you know, supernatural and, and recognizable ways. But go ahead. So, you know, and I love being at a charismatic church, uh, but I, I, you get this sense, and I think this happens through spiritual practices in the spiritual formation realm, too, is I think there's a different kind of chasing after God's presence, like not in the charismatic, but in the spiritual formation. So that, but that's a different thing. But, you know, a lot of times there's like this chasing the rain kind of idea that if you go to a conference or if you have a worship event just right, then it's like God's presence will fall on us. And there's like these rain clouds and we want the raindrops. And, um, and certainly those are some biblical metaphors, but the metaphor we've been given or the image or the reality is that the spirit is a spring of living water coming from within me. And so the reason why at times there are like a manifestation of God's presence in the gathered people is just because you're gathering a whole bunch of streams together. It's not because God decided at one point that the rain cloud would come. And then if we did things just right, that the presence would kind of fall on us. And then, but other times he just doesn't send the rain cloud. Uh, the, I think the, the more, the more biblical, like true reality is that we're all gathering streams, but sometimes because of our sin, we are like stuffing up our streams and our streams are all clogged. Uh, and then you have times of confession, you have times of repentance. And then all of a sudden all those springs like burst open and then people are like, Oh, the spirit really moved. And it's like, yeah, because our springs were all flowing together. <laughs> like, and so I, th- I, I've, I kind of have this, I, I think the stream language is better for understanding how God's presence comes and goes rather than like rain language. So I don't know. How does that fit, Marty? What do you think of that? No, I, I think that's great. And you know, I was thinking of, as you guys were talking on um, being someone that kind of grew up in a more, uh, well, I grew up Christian and evangelical free, um, then kind of transitioned to AG and then was working at a reformed church. And then I was working at the church where Josh and I met, which was, um, you know, non-denominational, which is really Baptist in disguise. Um, and then the next church I worked at was non-denominational. And then now I'm currently attending the AG church that I was kind of swimming in after the evangelical free church. And, you know, one of the things that through that, through that spiritual faith journey that I've been through, you know, whether it be, you know, I was at Gordon Conwell for seminary. And so a lot of that is very high church <laughs> out, out in New England area is being at the AG church and singing a song like where, where the lyric is, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Um, but working at a reformed church for two years and thinking, okay, well, God doesn't need us to tell him he's welcome. He is always, he is going to be there. And like, like there's, there isn't a, you know, God doesn't say, you know, well, you know, I just, I can't enter there because, you know, I'm just not welcome. They haven't, they haven't said out loud via song that I'm welcome to enter this place. So I guess I have to just wait until they do that. And, and, you know, I just wish people knew that that was the only thing stopping me is if they just sang those words out loud, then I would come in. And so like, there is always that sometimes that dichotomy for me is, you know, how do we measure that aspect where you're in a faith tradition that solely goes after presence in that type of way. And I I think there are a lot of charismatic um, churches and uh, movements right now that are solely focused on the emotion, solely focused on the experience, but there is no, you know, understanding necessarily. It's sort of like you were talking about earlier, Sid, that they've, instead of being solely focused on the knowledge part, 
they've been solely focused on the other, but thrown a lot of the other away. And so it's, it's very interesting kind of working through those dichotomies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, this is maybe off topic, but when you were talking about the Holy spirit, you are welcome here. I was just thinking, you know, God is a relational and personal God. And so the idea of like, someone can come into your house, whether you want them there or not, but it's a very different feeling when you say, welcome, come on in. I'm so glad you're here. Right. And so like the idea of like, you can, you can be in the same room with another person without acknowledging that the other person is there and Mm -hmm. it doesn't change the fact that the person is still there, but it's a very different thing going on when you have actually acknowledged, Hey, I'm so glad you're here. Mm -hmm. Let's be together. Right. So maybe that's part of the welcome Holy spirit. You're welcome here. Like, yeah, I know you're here, but I'm super glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, someone, I think it's at my church now or someone else has said the Holy spirit is a gentleman where like he'll, he'll be there, but he won't force himself mm-hmm. into the relationship. You have to, you have, it has to be something that he, he's not going to overwhelm. And and I think, I think that fits in nicely with that reform thought process too, that God is orderly, <laughs> that he's not going to, he's not going to go outside the bounds of this or that. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a cool, it's, it's been cool to yeah. see how those different faith trends, at least for me in that journey, how that's uh, been shaped. So. Well, and that connects to what Jeff was talking about earlier too, with the, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being in the garden, like God respects our personhood and our freedom. And he respects our, our willingness to choose or not choose and to turn toward or to turn away. Yeah. 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 I think too, um, if I can add something, I think another interesting angle in this conversation um, is that then you have some other faith traditions, Christian faith traditions where God has sort of been like uh, kicked out, like told, you know, you go upstairs and we'll stay down here. And then sometimes if we need you, we'll call you and like you come do a miracle or something like that. And like, I think that's very common, actually. I think that's maybe more commonly how people think about God uh, than not, Um, especially, I mean, like post-enlightenment, all that kind of stuff, Uh, which is actually why I think another reason, (laughs) I'm not trying to plug open and relational theology, but another thing that I think open and relational theology brings to the table here is the acknowledgement that God is fully active and present in all moments of all time. That like I, I cling and hold on to this idea that God is always constantly working to bring about the most amount of good and joy and peace and love in every moment of every situation, always, constantly. It's not that God is out there somewhere and we need to invite him to come do this stuff, but maybe a better question is how can we recognize and notice where God already is actively working and present and how can we tap into that stream uh, to use some of your, your language there, Jeff, or how can we align our streams with that? Something like that. Um, so I think that's another interesting just wrinkle in, in the conversation of how people look at stuff. Um, but I, so we have, oh man, I have three questions that I want to ask that build on each other, but I think uh, for sake of time, we might not be able to. Let's do to, rapid fire. We'll yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Right, we'll keep rapid fire. Short. We'll yeah. talk right. less. Yeah. All right. So three, wordy. three rapid fire questions. Uh, number one. Uh, growing up, a lot of us were given the message that God is angry with us. So what would you say to somebody right now, uh, perhaps one of your children, if they came to you, 
Uh, and they asked, uh, hey, is God angry at me? I would say how we internalize God's anger often says more about who we are and how we were raised than what God is actually thinking and feeling about us in this moment. And I would also approach it with a lot of curiosity, you know, like asking questions is always going to draw things out in a more effective way than talking. So I would just, you know, what is it that you believe God is angry at you for, um, you know, or what is it? Yeah. I think, you know, ask getting down to the, why do you believe God is angry at you? Um, is pretty much almost always going to come back to some kind of broken relationship on earth um, or some kind of shame that the person is stuck in and is not checking it out with what God tells us about how he feels about us in scripture. So, And I think being on the other side of the parenting kind of, you know, relationship a challenge or an encouragement, I can often feel like anger, resistance, or blaming when uh, it's not being given that way, but we receive it that way. And I think I, I sorry, one more thing I would also begin, I would also begin with the empathy of I can understand why it might feel that way. Right. Because I think that's the part that sometimes we don't offer is that, wow, I can understand why you would feel like God is really angry at you. You know, like I, the way that you're seeing the, the circumstances around you and the things that are going on, I, I can totally understand why you would feel that way. And then into, you know, asking more questions about it, because I think that's, it's easy to believe that God's angry. It's easy, like because of the world that we live in and because of the relationships that we have and because of all of the brokenness around us, it's not like, I, yeah, I don't think we can be hard. I'm talking too much. Go, rapid fire number two. All right, so I'm gonna push it one step further. Perhaps, at least in my experience growing up, uh, you know, just, you know, one of the worst things that you could hear uh, from your parents was, I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. And I think that question actually <laughs> sucks a lot more. And so then the that idea, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed, really kind of blows up um, and, and increases, you know, in the existential register once we then apply it to God. Okay, so maybe God isn't angry with us. Perhaps he's just disappointed. What do you think? Okay, well, I'll just say I think that's a parental problem, not a child problem. Um, I think the parental problem is that there are expectations that, you know, that the parent has placed on the children and saying, like, this is my expectation for you. And you have fallen short of that expectation. Um, and I believe the other way around that is to have expectancy um, that our kids are going to do great things and that our kids are going to want, you know, that our kids are going to. And so in God's sense, expectancy, like a hopefulness and an anticipation of um, what we are capable of and what we could do, um, but it's an open expectancy rather than a closed expectation of like, if you don't do this, I will be disappointed in you, but rather uh, I expect wonderful, like I, I have this expectancy that you and I are going to do great things together and we're going to have wonderful times together. And when that doesn't happen, it's not like we've let God down. It's that God is still anticipating that there's all this good stuff that he has in store. There might be sadness, but I don't think disappointment is an appropriate understanding of what that is with God. And so I think a parent who says, I'm not angry with you, I'm disappointed in you, has their own baggage around the expectations they have for their kids. 
Hmm. I'm guilty of that. I haven't I'm said it out to, loud, but I felt it. But I'm then about I, to go the opposite direction, so maybe we'll have to work this out after our podcast. Oh, I, I think. Um, well, I would say the same thing. All the kind of large negative emotions that we project onto God oftentimes are just us dealing with our own trauma, abuse, or how we've been raised. Um, so with that caveat, I would say I, I do think God is disappointed with us sometimes um, in the sense of not living up to the standards of the family that he has created. And so I think, and so I'm just going to, this has nothing to do with what Sid just said, but I think I'll tack against a lot of our cultural kind of drift right now is that <clears throat> shame, disappointment, messages of having failed are by default wrong, maybe abusive, violent, and these types of things. But I, I do think God called Israel, and then as we are conformed to Jesus, like we're we're called to live as a new family, and that family has different rules. And those rules are things like you need to forgive each other, and you need to love each other, and you need to care for the poor and the sick. Like those are our family rules. Um, and you're engaged in the family business, which is to extend the, the the kingdom of God. So those are the two kind of things is that we belong in God's presence. So we are part of the family, but we're also called to bless the world. Um, and so we're, we're engaging in God's purposes. And that's a family business is to bless the world is a family business. And so I think there is, um, and this goes back to the exile, you know, God was disappointed with Israel because he gave them the commission of all the nations in the world that Israel would say who God really is. Uh, and they weren't doing that. Uh, and they were taking God's name in vain. And I think there's all sorts of Christians in the West who take God's name in vain regularly. And God's disappointed with them because we're lying about who God is and what his nature is and what his mission in the world is all about. And so I would say maybe God is not angry with us and maybe God hasn't stopped delighting in us, but he can be disappointed in us. I think that I think there's and I think this is something that our culture has lost sight of is can you delight in somebody and be disappointed at the same time? Uh, Cause I think usually we have an all or nothing kind of mentality. Either you have to accept people as they are and you just need to rejoice in them, affirm, 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 whatever they're saying, whatever emotions they might have. Uh, or you're a jerk fundamentalist who's crit criticizing people and pointing out how people are wrong. Uh, and I, I don't think Jesus certainly didn't function that way. You could find him calling people out and you can find him having compassion. He had compassion for the same people. He called out the rich run you, the rich young ruler. And the text clearly says, and it hardly ever says this of Jesus that he loved him. He loved the rich. He loved the, you know, corrupt politician. He loved the stockbroker who was like hostilely taking over small businesses in mid America. Like he loved him and he called them to an extreme measure. And so, um, so I don't know. So I don't know. Now we're just talking. We're just like theologizing, like in real time here. Yeah, I think I think I agree with everything you just said. I think the flavor of the disappointment, right? Is it a condemnation kind of disappointment or is it a heartbroken kind of disappointment? I think for me, that's the key that like it isn't like a I'm just one step from being done with you. Right. It's yeah. not that kind of disappointment. It's the disappointment of I'm heartbroken because I know who you are mm -hmm. and you're not acting like who you are. Sweet. Yeah, that. Perfect. All right. Last one. And uh, Jeff, you gave us a perfect segue because you already used the phrase. And so uh, we can move from anger to disappointment to then I'm done. So what would you say to somebody who's listening right now that is asking the question, is God done with me? Uh, so we actually had a friend who uh, 
this shows up in the book again, uh, talking about the exile where she's like, yeah, I read the exile and that confirms to me that God's just one step from being done with me. And so she actually read the whole exile. So we were trying to think, how do we reframe that whole story about God? Just basically, you know, it feeling like God giving up on his people and letting them be captured and sent into slavery, uh, for 70 years and letting like, how, how is that a gospel redemptive story where God doesn't just, you know, quit on you? Um, um, and so the way we told it is that usually we look at the first thing that God does, uh, rather than the second thing that God does. And so, um, and I think relationships function this way too, is that, uh, like the first thing, it seems like God is just quitting on us, uh, or it seems like God is letting us die or, you know, just, you know, is done with us. Um, but I think a lot of times it's actually God saying, um, you, I'm going to treat you like an adult, or I'm going to treat you like a partner in this relationship. And so if you've made these choices, I will respect them. Uh, and so a lot of times it's more um, of us and what we've been doing rather than God. Um, but the second thing is God really wants to be known as the one who raises the dead, who forgives sin, who makes miracles happen, who takes impossible situations and turns them around. That's what God wants to be known for. And so the second thing he actually wants to do is say, well, I'm going to let you suffer the consequence of your own actions. And I'm also ready to forgive, to overcome, to liberate and free uh, at any point. Uh, and that's what I think God is hoping for and wanting to do. Um, but again, like you said about the Holy Spirit, like God, God is a gentleman. Uh, and so, um, and, and the other variable I'd put in there uh, is why do we blame everything on God? Uh, there's, we live, you know, my spiritual worldview is we live in a hostile world where malevolent spiritual forces are actively trying to destroy us. And so sometimes when something happens, it's not because we did something or that God's done with us. It's because frankly, things are trying to destroy everything good and beautiful in the world. Uh, and so maybe we need to tend to those things more too. So I'm in, <laughs> I don't know if you have more to add, Sid. No, I think, um, you know, that the parable of the prodigal father is, you know, a great picture, I think, of this, right? It's like um, the prodigal, the, the son has taken his inheritance. He's, you know, completely uh, defamated the father's character by behaving Basically like told he the has. Father, I wish you were dead. Yeah. So, you know, took his money and ran and turned his life into a complete fiasco. And he believes that the father is going to be done with him. Right. He says, at least I can go home and be a be a servant in my father's house. At least I can eat if I do that. So he's decided his father is done with him. But when he goes back, you know, and the, I mean, we've heard this parable so many times that I think we forget to see just how amazing it is. And now that I have teenagers, I have these young men that are about to leave my house in the next couple of years. I think about how hurtful that would be if one of them said, you know what, I'm so done with you. I'm going to go off and do my own thing and I'm going to do whatever I want. And, you know, having all of the people around me going like, wow, we thought your sons were actually going to do good things in the world. And wow, look what they're up to. Like, I can't believe what they're doing. Like, oh, that's like, and so, but to have the posture of the father who's just scanning the horizon, always ready, always waiting, always ready. And then the moment he sees the son, the son who believes the father has given up on him, 
he demonstrates in no uncertain terms that that is absolutely not the case, right? And runs to greet him, throws the party. We know how the story goes, but I think that sense of like, God is never, ever done. He never gives up. He's always in that posture of the prodigal father, just waiting and hoping and ready to throw a party. And so God is, if he, so I would say for a listener who's believing that God is done, you know, the answer is right there. He is never, ever, ever done, but he's never going to force you to come home either. So it always has to be a, as long as you choose to want to be away. And as long as you choose to want to be, dis, you know, disconnected, God will allow that to be the case. But the moment you say, well, maybe, maybe God's not done with me. His answer will be, you're absolutely right. I'm not done. Come on home. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, good. Those were, th- those were good. Sometimes I wonder if rapid fire sometimes gets a different answer, sure. not, not, not a better answer or a worse answer, but a different answer. But I thought those were all great. Um, well, I mean, th- this conversation has been really great. I've really appreciated everything we've talked about. And I feel like we've only really scratched the surface of what's in the book. Uh, does God really like me? So, I, so listeners, when you're listening to the, as you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I've listened to everything I need to listen to with this book. You're, you, you just haven't. So, you, so you need to go and get a copy. Uh, I promise you won't be disappointed. But um, where else can people find both of you? So you can find Sid. She has her own Facebook coaching page. Yeah, we it's also have, Sid you know, Holsclaw Coach. We are not on Parlor or WeMe or anything like that. We are just on the standard Facebook, and I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm just, on Twitter, but names. I haven't tweeted in like three years. So, so uh, we same. Also have, we also have <laughs> the God With Us podcast that you can find us. And, uh, and we're posting that on YouTube also. It's, it's on all the places. Dope. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah, I'll be sure to uh, include those in the show notes. That way people can connect with you guys. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Awesome. Well, Jeff and Sid, this was a super fun conversation. I'm glad that uh, it finally got to happen. And um, yeah, listeners, as always, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. Go Red Wings. I can't say it, so you don't have to say it. (laughs) (laughs) And for Jeff, go go Sharks or whoever. (laughs) Sweet. All right, guys. Just waiting for basketball to start. There you go. There you go. Peace and love, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us.